Uh, Romans 6 is where we go. Open up to Romans 6. And I wanted to start by telling you that this week I went back and I read an article that I saw a couple years ago that I saved in my Evernote. It was a study done by Lifeway Research where they polled the average American on the topic of sin. Okay? Sin. And surprisingly, the very first thing that sort of caught my eye about this, about this survey is when they, when they asked Americans, are you a sinner? Two out of three Americans said, I'm a sinner. That's actually not bad, right? Two out of three. So the title of this was, Lord, have mercy on 67% of us, because that's, that's all that's needed, okay? Two out of three, all right, said, yeah, I'm a sinner. Now, uh, the, the rest of that group, 33% of the people who did not admit to being a sinner, here's how they broke down. This is really fascinating, all right? So first of all, what you need to know is that 8% of, the, of that other 33%, 8% don't see themselves as sinners. They have really high self-esteem, okay? And then 10% don't think sin exists, which that makes sense to us, right? And then another 15% said, I prefer not to answer the question, which is kind of odd. It's like, do you want to take a survey? Yes. First question, I prefer not answer that question. But anyway, it's a technicality, okay? So then, now go back to that that 67% of those self-confessed sinners. This is really interesting. Here's what you need to know. 5% of them said, I don't mind being a sinner. It's interesting. And most say they're either working on being less of a sinner, 34%. Or 28% say they're depending on Jesus to overcome their sin, okay? Only 28% are depending on Jesus. Now, what they did is then they went in and and then they specifically broke that down between men and women. Now, guys, pay attention to what I'm about to say to you, okay? Here's the thing you need to know. More women than men said they're depending on Jesus to deal with their sin, all right? This is like, do you use Google Maps? Do you ask for help for directions to where you're going? Okay, guys, only 22% of men say they're looking to Jesus to help them, 33% of women say they are, and then they go on and they compare Protestants and Catholics and evangelicals, and then they got really specific. They asked all kinds of questions about different sort of categories of sin out there in the world, and what they discovered is Americans are all over the map. Even Americans who attend church are all over the map when it comes to sin. There's like There's like a lot of confusion, even in the church, when it comes to the issue of sin, right? And they didn't, in this this study, they didn't even actually ask the really complicated stuff. Like, once you're actually a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, then how should you think about sin in your life? Like, what should be your expectations? I'm saved. I've got the spirit of Christ within me. I have all the power of the resurrection of God within me. What should now my expectations be when it comes to sin? They didn't even ask that question. And the thing that we need to realize as we turn the chapter on Romans 6, which I'm going to direct your attention to now, is is that even in Paul's day, people were really confused about sin. Really confused. In fact, what you need to know And I'm going to show you this in just a moment as I read verse 1. People in Paul's day were confused about sin 
because of something that Paul himself taught. There was something that Paul would teach, and every time he would teach it, it would cause his hearers to get really confused about sin. So we look at now Romans 6, verse 1. Let me show you what happens here. We're sort of turning the page. We're making a major transition in our study in Romans. Chapter 1 through 5 is viewed as kind of one big block. And then chapter 6 through sort of chapter 11 are viewed as another big block. So this is a massive pivot in the letter. And look right out of the gate. Paul asks a question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question. Paul says... He's writing, he finishes chapter five, and he goes, now I, I, I know, I've learned by experience what people start thinking based on my teaching. And so he anticipates this question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the reader's going, well, Paul, how'd you get to that? What was the logical step that got you to that question? And the answer is, you need, you need to remember, Paul just made probably one of the most radical statements about grace that you can make in the Bible. It's right back there up in chapter 5, verse 20. I don't have this on the screen so that you will actually go to your own Bible. Look at your own Bible. Paul's been making this bold claim about salvation, that you get saved, you get justified by grace through faith alone without any works no works involved. It's all grace. And then Paul makes the most crazy claim about grace. He's, remember last week, Marianne, this masterful sermon where Marianne broke down this complex passage. She's like, there's sort of like two realms now. There's those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who are in Adam are still under the realm of sin. Those who are in Christ are now in a new realm, the realm of grace. And Paul makes this claim. You see it there in verse 20? He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul says, the more that sin increased in our world, the more it caused grace to superabound. That's how God responded to sin. He just poured out so much grace that even the Christian should go, that is a scandalous response to human sin. This abounding grace of God. And Paul's writing this, and right as he gets to the end of chapter 5, you can almost see the steam coming off his head because he's thinking, he's going, now I know what people are thinking. See, what they're thinking now is that, well, wait a minute, Paul, if you're telling me that when sin increases, grace abounds, wouldn't the logical conclusion be to keep on sinning, to bring more glory to God as his grace abounds, right? That's what Paul's asking. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? If grace abounds, think about this. If grace abounds, not as a reward for our righteousness, but as God's response to our sin, wouldn't the logical conclusion be to keep on sinning so that God would continue to pour out grace and get more glory? Now you're thinking, are you crazy? <laughs> but I actually knew a guy in Eugene who believed this. 
okay? And I didn't stand too close to him for fear that I would get struck by lightning as well because I was talking to a guy in Eugene back in my Eugene days and he was like, don't you know what the Bible teaches, man? The Bible teaches that where sin increases, grace abounds. So I have a life philosophy that I am going to sin boldly so that I can bring more glory to God as he pours out grace. And I started backing away from the guy. I can smell the cooked bacon already, all right? And Paul's going, Paul's going, it's, it's possible to conclude this. Now, before we poke fun at other people, can I ask you a question? Have you ever, now, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but have you ever thought, there's a moment that's right in front of you, and have you ever thought, you know, it's probably not that big of a deal because God's gracious. And I know he'll forgive me because he's so forgiving, right? And then you sort of st- you sort of just step into, this is how I do it. You sort of just step into the moment. You just kind of, you just kind of dance up to it because you know God's gracious, right? The word for this, theologians, the word they use is the word antinomianism, which sounds like a big, it's just, it's just two Greek words put together. Anti, which means against, and namas, which means law. So it's lawlessness. It's just this idea of like, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what we do, we just sin boldly. I can have the best of this world, do whatever I want, and I don't, and I won't jeopardize in any way the next world. And actually, antinomianism had a long history in the church. You meet it almost immediately in the New Testament. Paul dealt with it on a regular basis. Jude, in the book of Jude, chapter, uh, Jude verse 4 Jude was dealing with it. He talked about certain people who've crept in unnoticed, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. So right away, early on, as the gospel's being preached, because the gospel is this message of radical grace, it became easy to misinterpret that message as a license to just do whatever you wanted. And Paul says, we've got to talk about this. So... By the way, it's worth noting, just a side note, the fact that Paul dealt with this enough that he learned to anticipate it. So think about this. He, he, he's writing Romans and he knows, I, I know what they're thinking. Well, why would Paul know that? Because he had, he had had this charge come to him on a regular basis. All right? So think about this. What, you know what that should tell you? That should tell you Paul actually did preach a radical gospel of God's sheer, scandalous grace. Salvation by grace through faith and your works have no contribution. He preached that so radically that every time he preached it, people accused him of antinomianism. That should tell us something. So I once heard a theologian say, if in your church you're never accused of something like this, it probably means you're not actually preaching the gospel of God's scandalous grace. Because if people never go, well, wait a minute, are you, saying it, are you saying it doesn't matter what we do? If you never get that charge, it means you haven't radically talked about God's abounding scandalous grace. But the next thing I want you to notice is that Paul, so notice what the way, the, I'm going to read it to you. The way that Paul responds is so interesting. He doesn't, Paul doesn't back off. He doesn't go, okay, 
you know what? You're right. I overstated that. <laughs> I, I got ahead of myself. It was, you know, you, you do need to add a couple works, right? It's not just sheer grace. Paul actually doubles down. He doubles down. So look what he says next. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. In other words, absolutely not. And in one sense, that's the answer. No. The answer to that is no. But now the question you and I should be asking is, okay, but why, Paul? Explain it. And so what I'm going to do now is, verse, the next 10 verses, verses 2 through 11, are so densely packed with logic what I'm going to do is I'm going to read them really slowly, and then I'm going to put on the screen three sentences that summarize this teaching as simply as I possibly can, and then we're going to unpack it together, okay? So now let's read through it really slowly. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, now that is dense, okay? Like we skipped the salad and the hors d'oeuvres and we went straight to the steak and we're just gonna have to chew on it, all right? I hope you're hungry this morning. Okay, because this is like thick, thick teaching. Can I ask you a question really quick before I go on? Are you thinking right now, this seems pretty important. I really need to understand what I just read. Because before I keep going, I need, are you thinking, this, this seems really important. Are you thinking about Stranger Things season four? Be honest with me. Or like Top Gun, you know, it's getting great reviews. Like, what are you thinking about right now? Okay, because when I read this, I think there may not be a passage in the Bible that's more important for a Christian to actually say, I understand this. Because it seems to me that what Paul is saying here is he's saying there's actually a way to live a life where you begin to move out of sin more and more and more. And not only that, he's giving us some of the most practical advice for how to actually do it. 
So I cannot imagine a passage that's worth, worthy more of our deepest thought and our most humble attention. Amen? So I'm going to put these, here's, here's my first summary statement. When Christ died, believers in some profound and very real sense, we died in him. We, we actually died with him in some very real way. Here's sentence number two. When Christ rose, believers in some very profound, very real sense, we were made alive in him. Here's sentence number three. Therefore, believers are commanded to become in practice what we are in Christ. That is, dead to sin and alive to God. Now, can I point something out, which is as you're looking at that, notice, first of all, do you notice all the language in there of being in Christ, in him, in him, in Christ? And actually, that's intentional and you might have even noticed that in the passage, because in the passage, that language is sort of, in, Paul uses it throughout the whole passage. It's all about being in Christ. We're baptized into Christ. We're in Christ. We died with Christ. Verse 6, we're united with, we're united with Christ in his death. We're united with Christ in his resurrection. And Paul's very clearly emphasizing a doctrine that theologians call our union with Christ, that the believer is somehow at the moment of salvation when you say, Jesus, I believe what the gospel says, that sin is real and that you died for my sin. There's this spiritual union that happens where Christ and the Christian become completely united so that in some way, and this is a mystery, so I'm going to try to explain it, that in some way, what happened to Christ gets counted to the believer by God as if it happened to you. And it's the very most important things that happened to Christ. His death and his resurrection to new life. And this is why Paul brings into his argument now baptism. So think about this. What is the primary thing that baptism symbolizes? It symbolizes my death with Christ. We always say this. We say when, when, when you're watching someone get baptized, that, that, that moment, it's an ordinance. It's a practice, the church practice. What that person is saying is, I was crucified with Christ. His death became my benefit. He died to sin. The believer goes under the water, symbolizing death. And, and, the, and the believer stays under there for a little while. I mean, not very long because we don't want to freak people out. But that sort of symbolizes being in the tomb. And then as they come out of the water and the water pours over them and they're smiling and rejoicing and the church is going bonkers, that symbolizes being made alive, new spiritual life. Paul says, this is why baptism is such a critical part of the Christian faith. 
Because baptism captures perfectly what I'm talking about. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to read to you verse 3 again. Look at verse 3, and then I'm going to share with you a principle. I'm going to read verse 3 the way I think Paul probably was feeling it when he wrote it. Because I think this is really interesting. I think this is what Paul felt as he wrote it. He said, do you not know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Don't you know this? Now remember, Paul had never been to Rome. He, he, he knew almost no one in the church. There, no apostle had ever visited Rome. We talked about this early on in the study. So Paul's writing a letter to a church that no apostle had visited. Most biblical scholars believe the church in Rome was planted because at the day of Pentecost, remember back in Acts, there were probably people from Italy who came, heard the gospel, got saved. They went back home to Rome. They started sharing the good news about Jesus. They planted churches. And Paul had never been there. And remember, it's a church with elderly and young, educated, uneducated, poor, Rich, sophisticated, unsophisticated, people who were slaves, people who owned businesses. And Paul writes a letter, and first of all, notice, he assumes every single one of them had been baptized. And not only that, Paul assumes every single one of them knew exactly what their baptism meant. They knew what it meant. Poor people, uneducated people, rich people, Fourth graders, 40-year-olds, every one of them had been baptized. And they understood what their baptism meant. I read that and I go, man, we have a little bit of work to do, don't we? (laughs) Can I share with you a principle? If you want, you can write this down. Here's the principle. Every Christian needs to have a basic understanding of what happened to them when they were united to Christ by grace through faith. Every Christian needs to have a basic understanding. See, we read Romans 6 and maybe we think, yep, this is like theology 401. And Paul's going, but it's not. This is theology 101. Like you need to know this about your identity. And this is why, so like, This is why we talk so much about our understanding baptism class. So, you know, when I get up here and I promote classes, maybe you're thinking, you're always promoting stuff. But you need to know something like, first of all, I never promote anything that I don't believe in, okay? So, like, if I get up here and I say, if you've not been baptized or you've not taken understanding baptism, you really need to take the class. Do you know what I mean by that? What do you think I mean by that? You really need to take the class, okay? What I'm saying is, if you've not taken understanding baptism, even if you've been baptized, you should probably take the class. Because it's possible that even though you've been baptized, you didn't even understand what your baptism meant fully. And Paul's saying, this isn't theology 401, it's 101. You gotta understand, my baptism meant that I literally spiritually and in some very real way I died with Christ Paul says Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me he's just rehearsing 
what he learned in understanding baptism at River West Church. No, he's not. He, but do you get it? Okay, notice one other thing here. Look back at your Bible. Notice the repetition of words in this passage that fall under the category of, of contemplation or, uh, or, or reflection, like reflecting or like thinking really deeply about something, like this pondering moment. You read something complex, do you just go, That's, I, don't, I don't get it? Or do you stop and go, wait, wait a minute. Let me think about this really deeply. And Paul uses this language. So you're going to see, if you look through that, you're going to see words like know, believe, consider. Let me just show you. Look at your Bible. Right out of the ver- verse 3, do you not know that all of us have been baptized? Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. And then the capper, the one I love, is verse 11. So you, almost, you also must consider, consider yourselves dead to sin. Paul's doing something here. He's saying, what I'm talking about here is not, it's, it's, it's not simple. It doesn't mean you can't get it. It means you really need to think and ponder and meditate. And why? Paul says, because, now wait a minute, this is where it gets really practical, because this is the way to move forward in your struggle against sin. This is how you do it. Paul's saying, the Christian who continues in sin or keeps falling back into sin, what's really happening is that they're, they're, they, don't, they don't really know who they truly are. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, this is about me actually understanding some real truth about my identity. And when I don't really understand that truth about my identity then I shouldn't be surprised if I continue to stumble into stuff that I didn't want to stumble into. Paul's saying, you're never going to see any progress in sin by taking the stoic approach. You know what the stoic, the stoic, the stoics were just like, just say no. It was all about willpower, like white knuckle. I'm going to fight this. I'm so strong. And Paul says, all the willpower in the world is not going to help you if you don't actually know who you are. Friend, can I ask you something? Do you know what your true identity in Jesus Christ is? Because what Paul's talking about here is something Jesus says is true about you. This is, in our culture, we're obsessed over, I got to find my identity. What is my identity? And Jesus is like, I, I told you what your identity is in Romans 6. You're dead, you are dead to sin and you're alive to God in Christ. That's your identity. Now, let me give you a really practical principle. This one I do want you to write down because I think this is going to be the most helpful thing you can do in your life. Here's the principle. The fight against sin begins and ends on your knees with your Bible open, praying, thinking, 
meditating about what Jesus says about your true identity. That's how you fight sin. You're struggling with, I, I, I'm struggling with sin. Please don't misunderstand what's happening here. I am a sinner who struggles, who, who regrets. So are you, if, are you struggling with sin? Join the club. Join the club. And here's Paul saying, can I, can I give you a helpful tool? Here's how you fight sin. Every day, fall down on your knees. Open up your Bible. Pray. Romans 6. Pray, think, meditate. God, who am I? What do you tell me my identity is? It's so interesting. We have in the Christian faith, we have these, we have these spiritual practices. Some people call them spiritual disciplines. And that language is okay. I prefer the, the language of spiritual practices so, or spiritual habits. So you think of like the spiritual habits would be praying or fasting or memorizing scripture, reading your Bible, serving, uh, solitude, Sabbath. Some of them Jesus modeled for us. Have you ever thought it's odd that Jesus, who is God the Son, would model for us going away to pray to God the Father and you go, part of the reason of modeling that was to show us the value of prayer or reading your Bible. Some of them are directly commanded, pray without ceasing or meditate. You know, meditation is commanded on many occasions. Meditate on the Bible. And the Christian would probably go, well, well, why? Like, why did Jesus give us these practices you know, and should I be doing, should I be fasting on some, somewhat of a rate? Should I be praying? Should I be having some solitude? Should I be memorizing scripture or meditating it? My answer to that is, yes, you should, because Jesus modeled it and commanded it. But the other thing you need to realize is there's always this connection with how to actually live the Christian life and like fight sin. So let me put, I'll put up, I'm going to put up two of my favorite verses on meditation and notice here's Joshua 1, 8. Okay. Joshua 1, 8 says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. So the purpose of meditating on scriptures to is to actually have my heart change, my mind change, and then I actually start doing the things that the Bible talks about. Or Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart. That's a meditation. God, I'm hiding. I'm like stuffing, tucking, working. I'm not just like reading a verse. I'm, I'm taking a verse. I'm writing on a three by five card. I'm putting it on my steering wheel. I'm chewing on it. I'm singing it. When I drive, I'm meditating on it. Well, why? Because I don't want to sin anymore. And I believe the power to actually, I'm never going to be perfect. We're always going to struggle. That's why there's grace. But I think what, I think what Paul's saying is he's saying, you can actually make a lot more progress than you. Re- you could start to move forward. And things that have had you in shackles, like do you feel like you have shackles on today spiritually? I think the gospel is saying, 
there is a power to move forward in your life and see some of those shackles fall away. And one of the ways to do it is to hide God's word in your heart and meditate. And we get this, right? Sometimes it's not enough to just hear something taught. So you, you come to church and you hear something taught, right? And then next Sunday, I'm like, hey, what'd you think about last week's sermon? And you're like, I don't even remember what you talked about last week, right? Be honest. Come on now. So we, like, we, we hear things taught, and, and sometimes they lodge with us. But there is a power. So uh, if I teach Romans 6, and then you go home, and you go, you know what? I need to meditate on this passage this week. There is something really powerful going on here. Like, and if I start, I wonder if I'll start changing by just, just stuffing this into my heart and my soul. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 is so powerful. What does he say? He says, consider yourselves dead to sin. Consider yourselves Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. What does he mean when, when he says dead to sin? This is something you have to meditate on because you could go, well, wait, does that mean, is, is he saying that because I'm dead to sin, I no longer want to sin? But that can't, that, the problem with that is I've never met a Christian who doesn't at times struggle with the desire to, to sin. That struggle, that, temp- that temptation is going to be with you. Is he saying, I no longer do sin? I hope that's not what you think he's saying, okay? But he's got to be saying something else. And, if you, and by meditating on Romans 6, we get there. What, I think what Paul's doing here is he's saying, when you die to sin, it means you are no longer under sin's reign, Sin is, Paul's saying sin is not just things we do. Sin is actually a force. It's a power that puts people in bondage. It enslaves people. So that before people come to Christ, you know, you could probably, you could probably remember before you were a Christian, you could remember think, I didn't even have a choice. I, I was just a slave. I just did whatever I wanted to do. And that's probably the right way to think about it. Paul's saying, but, but when you come to Christ and you die, you die to, you're no longer under sin's reign anymore. It doesn't mean you won't be tempted. It doesn't mean you won't struggle. I think what Paul's saying is now you no longer are a slave. You no longer have to do anything. You're free. And that's a huge teaching. Here's the, 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 the greatest illustration I've ever heard about this. It's super old. But it's, imagine um, an evil military force has taken over a country. They have, a, they have control of the capital. They have control of all communication systems. And then a good military force comes in and they go to war. They defeat the evil force. But that force isn't booted out completely. They, they go underground, right? So the good force takes over the capital. They take over, they, they, they take over life. But now you have this sort of this guerrilla military force that's sort of out in the out in the wild and they're still waging war and Paul says that's a great way to think about sin sin's been defeated grace reigns you're in Christ you are free and yet 
Sin is still there in the world and sin is kind of waging warfare and there are times where it's kind of, it's sneaking out to tempt you or attack you. And the difference now is you are free. You don't have to, you don't have to sin. It it has no power over you. And Paul says, look at verse 11 again. He says, but you have to, this is something you have to meditate on. You have to think regularly about your identity. And the Christian will go, well, why? If something's true of me, why would I have to spend time like contemplating it or or reckoning it to myself? That word consider is like reckon. It's like tell tell yourself, this is who I really am. No, no, no. This is who I really am. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. And you say, why do I have to do that? Oh, it's so simple because there are things that are true about us that we don't actually live into all the time, right? Things about my, can a single person, excuse me, can a married person live in this world as if they're single and behave like a single person? They can. People do it all the time. And you go, is that person actually married? Because the way they're behaving, I'm not sure. They're, and they actually are married. That's why that ring is so helpful. Or can a, you know, could, a, could a person who's actually totally free live in the world as if they're in bondage? Or could a person who's actually rich live in the world as if they're poor? And the answer is yeah. I heard a crazy story last year. Maybe you remember the story. This happened in covid Maybe not. It was a woman named Kathy Boone who died. Uh, she died in a, in a homeless camp in Astoria after she had sort of struggled with, with houselessness for three years. And when she died, she had a million dollars in the bank. And she knew it. Her mom had told her, hey, you inherited a million dollars. And she just did for some reason, she's like, nope, I, I'm, I am houseless. And she lived in this state of being poor and houseless. And the whole time she had a million dollars in the bank. And Paul's saying, but wait a minute, Christian, you, God says you are dead to sin and you're alive to God. And is it possible though, that a person could live as if that's not true? And I think the answer is, yeah. And that's why Paul says, slow down, pull out that Bible pray, meditate. God, who am I? Who do you say that I am? Oops. Okay, one last, one last thing. I'm going to read to you the last couple verses here. This is where Paul's going to get really practical. And then we're, uh, then we're going to pray and we're going to worship. Look at verses 12 to 14. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. I can summarize this last paragraph really simply. Here's kind of a third principle and it's this we are free to fight sin and we are free to win so let's fight that's the principle we're free to fight sin we're free to win so let's fight 
Let's fight. And Paul says it's so practical. Don't present, don't present yourself to it. Don't present any part of you. That word members is just, it could be any part. It's your mind, your mouth, your heart, your hands, your feet, your lips, your attitude, your desires. Paul says, walk out of church today and present all those things to God and to righteousness. And then that's how you start fighting. I want to share with you one last kind of illustration that I I think will be really helpful. How do you do this? Because it's easier said than done, right? You're in that moment and the temptation is so strong. And how do you fight? So think about this just last little sentence. Remember that sin always hides from you the price tag of what you're about to do. Sin always hides the price tag. What, what do you mean, pastor? Here's what I mean. When you're getting tempted, and you gotta remember, there's somebody tempting you. And when he's tempting you, our, our adversary, the devil, he's only tempting you with the beginning of sin. But he never shows you where it's going. He hides that from you because he knows it will cost you more than you ever want to spend. You're tempted by that young single coworker. But see, that moment of temptation, the only thing you're thinking about is the early parts. <laughs> and Satan's like hiding from you the brutal conversation you have to have with your spouse or your children or your real estate agent as you're selling your home. You're tempted to cut that corner because it'll get you ahead really quick at work, but Satan's hiding from you the awkward conversation you have to have when your manager pulls you into the office. You're tempted by that drink that you want to have in secret or that meal that you want to hide from people, but what you're not being shown is all of the fallout, all the consequences of falling after that. And so if you were to stop and go, wait a minute, let me actually think this one through. So where is this going? And then you go, oh my gosh, I don't want to go there. Paul says, consider. Don't present yourself to that. Present yourself to God in Christ. He's, he's going to finish this argument in chapter, in verses 15 to the end of the chapter, and we're going to come back in a couple weeks to do that. Next Sunday, when you come back, we're going we're gonna to take a Sunday and, and share a little bit of some vision about how we form disciples here at our church. So hope you'll come back for that. And um, what I want to do is just say a prayer for you while the worship team comes, and then we'll take communion together. Will you, will you bow your heads? And I'll pray. Well, Lord, we're, we're thinking deeply and we're hearing a lot, and it's all good. It's, it's intense, it's deep, it's, it's thick, it's really, it's really profound, but it's all good. And we need to hear every bit of it. And what I love about this teaching is it doesn't contradict the grace. We are saved by grace through faith. 
And that salvation unites us to Jesus in such a way where our identity has been changed. We know, God, that yes, when we struggle, you are gracious and forgiving. But also, we know that part of this relationship with Jesus means a change in our desires, a change in our affections. How I pray for that this morning, Lord, as we worship. We love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.